loving Father in heaven, we're living in very crucial times. We're so used to freedom and life being normal that we don't even feel very much how the time of the end is approaching us. I lived in a dictatorship for many years. I know in this country we're coming toward the end. Oh dear Lord, I pray especially for this year of elections. It's hard to decide who to vote for, if even we want to vote. But Lord, help us to believe you're working behind the scenes to accomplish your purposes. Guide this nation. It has such an impact on the whole world. And may we take advantage right now of the precious opportunities we have before the lamb-like beast speaks like a dragon. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned to you yesterday, I want to start by talking about the, the papal encyclical on the Sabbath issued forth by Pope John Paul II. Why am I talking about this here in the seminar? Because we're talking about Dare to be a Daniel and about last day events. How to be prepared, how to develop the spiritual reservoir to help us be ready. Now, I want us to spend a few minutes on page 158 and a few pages later. And there you'll see the papal encyclical summarized, especially I want you to look at the end of the encyclical where the Pope urges people everywhere to campaign to have Sunday law be legislated as a law. The last counterfeit of God's great gifts will be the counterfeit of the Sabbath, and that's Sunday law. First of all, national Sunday law is not very severe, but finally, international Sunday law. The whole world will be swayed and wander after the beast. Now, uh, I'm looking at page 158 in the book, Dare to be a Daniel. Does somebody need to use the book to borrow it to look at the things I'm looking at? If you do, raise your hand, please. Raise your hand. Who can help me? Jennifer and Sherilyn, can you please help me? Do you notice I'm talking to my wife, I'm talking to my reader, and then not paying attention to me? They're busy talking about music. Jennifer and Mrs. Saman, I'm talking to you. And you're busy in front of all this crowd of people talking about music. So I'm asking you to help distribute these books. Let's raise your hands again, please, to have how many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. We need about twenty of them, please. Now these are for you to borrow because I want you to follow what I'm saying. The statements, the quotation, you know they are there, precisely there. I'm not uh, improvising, I'm not paraphrasing. At the end of the summer, you can bring them up to the front so we could use them in other meetings. Okay, as you are distributing those books, I want to look right now at page 158. Under the subheading, the 1998 Papal Encyclical on the Sabbath. Okay, one more in this direction. One more. Okay, that's it, isn't it? I hope everybody gets one. That's all we have. Anybody else needs one? Raise your hand. I think everybody is satisfied. Raise your hand if you need anyone. At the end, when you come up here to see me at the end of this message, tell me and I'll make sure you get one. So I'm the author, so I'll find something somewhere. Okay, look at that. Let me read you the introduction to this. Lest we are tempted to think that such papal usurpation of God's holy biblical Sabbath is relegated to the distant past, let us examine most recent papal encyclical, Dies Domini, which means the day of the Lord, of May 31, 1998. And in this encyclical, we're going to talk about what past legislation was about Sunday law, 1998, advocated by Pope John Paul II, the most popular Pope, and what Francis I is telling us about Sunday law, building on this encyclical. 
The reasoning of Pope John Paul II, author of the encyclical, is divided into four arguments. Now, of course, John Paul II is canonized as a saint to be prayed to. As you know, historically that happened. The first one, historical. The Pope appeals to history. What does he say there? He traces how the papacy changed the sacredness of the Sabbath to Sunday. He readily admits that such a change was the result of what? Of biblical support? No. It was the result of what? Wise pastoral intuition. Please don't ever listen to any sermon I preach if I'm preaching it because of my own intuition. I don't care about my intuition. I want the intuition of God in his word. That's all. If everybody goes by the intuition, we have millions of intuitions. I'm so glad our faith is not anchored on intuition or subjective feelings. To Christianize the day of the sun. Because there was a day of the sun called Sunday, day of the sun. Used by heathens. And what happened to Catholic missionaries around the world, they were told to Christianize heathen customs and festivals baptize them in Christianity. And Sunday was the one that was Christianized. He also recognizes that the association of the Sabbath with the Jewish people is not good. Well, the Sabbath should be associated with the whole world. It's not something Jewish. Jesus is not just for the Jews, it's for the whole world. The Sabbath was made for humanity. There was no Jew in the Garden of Eden. There was Adam and Eve. And they are not Chinese. And they are not Buddhists. They are not Jews. They are not Muslims. At all. They are just our first parents. And the Sabbath was given to them. And advocates the Christians need to have their own day of worship. He advocates the Christian must have their own day of worship. Well, God has already chosen the day of worship. Everybody, just Christians, all people were given the seventh Sabbath. Theological reason. Pope John Paul II gives an accurate biblical view of the validity of the Sabbath doctrine. One feels quite impressed with this, with his theological accuracy and acumen. Oh, when I read this, I felt he really advocates the Sabbath. He is so capable to give a good Bible study on the Sabbath, hoping he stays with the biblical truth. But unfortunately, he puts his entire biblical evidence aside and plainly states that the Catholic Church saw fit and had the authority to change the sacredness of the Sabbath to Sunday. Let me respond to that respectfully and say nobody is fit, no individual, no church, no authority is fit to change God's commandments. Are you fit to change the Constitution of the United States? And that's the law of this land. Then how can we think we're fit to change God's Constitution in heaven? Let me tell you something else. There's something unique about the Ten Commandments. And before you misunderstand me, I'll explain quickly what I'm saying. All the Bible was inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit. The Ten Commandments were not inspired by God. Didn't need to be inspired by God. Why? Because you know what inspiration is? God impresses you with certain, with certain thoughts, his thoughts. God didn't need to inspire. He wrote it with his own finger. I don't need to inspire that. I'm handing it to you, Moses. In the presence of God, the face of Moses shone like the sun. They had to put a veil on the face of Moses. We talk about Muslim women veiling themselves. Moses, a man had to be veiled because the glow on his face. He was in the very holy presence of God. Can you put yourself in the place of Moses? He received two tablets of stone with God's handwriting on it. I, I, I am sure he had very good handwriting. God did. And he didn't use a pen or a pencil. He used his own finger. 
His finger is so powerful, it carved the letters in stone, which means permanently. You say it's not graved, engraven in stone, meaning it's not permanent. It was permanent. It was engraven on stone. And can you imagine Moses touching what God touched? Like if you don't want to wash your hands ever. You know, sometimes you might have the chance to shake hands with the President of the United States or celebrity. See, I don't want to wash my hands for a while. Now you're touching something God touched. I'm sure Moses put his finger where God's finger was. Written by God's own finger. If I want to belittle any part of the Bible, that will be last part to disregard. How dare we change what God wrote with his own finger? How do we have the audacity to do away with what God blessed and sanctified? Do you want to mess with anything God sanctified? I don't want to. When people ask me, there's nothing special about the Sabbath, every day can be a good day. And now among even Seventh-day Adventists, the idea now is spreading that don't take that literally, spiritualize it. And the idea of the fourth commandment is that you just have the idea of rest. As long as you rest, it's okay. Spiritual rest. No, it is a physical and spiritual rest on a specific day. Can I address my good friends here, Chris, Shabana? I don't know in your experience if you, when she came to America with you, you dated, right? In America, we date. In Islam, I don't think they date. When I first heard the word date, when my first year in this country, I thought of the dates we ate in Syria, you know? The fruit of the tree, you like like a date? I I love dates, you know? No, no, we talk about one date, (laughs) not many dates. What do you mean? Oh, it means that you invite a young lady to eat with you or something. Can you imagine Chris inviting on a date Monday evening to a fancy restaurant and then, and you took it seriously. Seven o'clock, we're going there and you prepared yourself ready to go to a special date. And he, may the Lord forgive you if you did that. He says, well, what I meant was a spiritual date, which means any day, any time, it doesn't matter. Well, how do you get ready for that? You know what I'm saying? No, God meant holy time, specific date. You can't have a date unless you're spe- specific. Jennifer, did David ever ask you for a date? He did? Many times, right? He was specific the time, wasn't it? Now, tell me the truth before all these people. Be brave. If he played it by ear and you waited in the dorm for him at 7 o'clock already and he didn't show up at all, he wouldn't gotten by with it. And if he did this hundreds of times, hundreds of times, he didn't care. He, he came to you a month later maybe. Then I don't think you would have gotten married. That would have revealed something about his character. If this is how we relate to human relationships, why not take God's? calling us on a special holy date seriously. So then, look at C on page 159. The third reason the Pope gives for the Sabbath, sociological. That's very important today, by the way. Pope Francis I built on the arguments of Pope John Paul II. And he had a special convention in Philadelphia about what? about the family, sociological reasons. We must have Sunday law because the family is being destroyed. Sociological reason for keeping Sunday as the holy day. And I'll read that to you. The Pope is attentive to the stressful existence people are burdened with. Sunday observance, he argues, would provide the much-needed remedy to lighten the burden and allow families to spend more quality time together. Doesn't that seem reasonable? We live in a very stressful world, not just in America and India, other places of the world. Why? Because of the internet, internet the, 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 the electronics, how the world is so connected. What affects America this minute affects the whole world. 
So people are stressed out. They don't have time to spend with their families, and the family is suffering, especially in America. The average American marriage lasts only seven years. So I feel so proud of myself. Thank you, Lord, for helping me married 44 years to the girl I met in college. And people say, that's a long time. How can you stand your husband? She said, I can. By the grace of God, I can stand him. Isn't that true? And we plan to stay married until Jesus comes. And we would like to be married in heaven. Even the Lord Jesus says, there'll be no marriage or given in marriage. I met a couple who were having struggle. And, the, and after all the arguments and all the counsel, is so complex, the counsel, they didn't like each other, could not stand each other. I could tell. And the husband finally sighed a sigh of relief. <gasps> At least in heaven, we don't have to get married. And the Lord is coming soon. So soon... The struggle will be over. I mean, what a statement of faith. Oh, my. And you look at her face. She said, amen to him. <laughs> she liked the idea. But I like to be, have a special relationship. And I believe we'll have a special relationship with our loved ones. And I tell you, I don't know what God's preparing. Whatever he's preparing, it'll be a million times better than the marriage we know. He's God. He wants us to be happy. So don't ever worry about God. He knows what he's doing. Now, look at this. He argues that Sunday observance would provide the much-needed remedy to lighten the burden, allow families to spend more time together. He then appeals to who? Now, I'm telling you about past history. Things don't change in the papacy. Look at the book, Great Controversy. It tells you that. Then he says, appeals, to Pope Leo XIII. Hundreds of years before, in support of Allah, of Sunday observance. And I'm quote the Pope John Paul II, Sunday rest as a worker's right. That's a very important word. It's my civil right, which the state must guarantee. It's a law. It's a civil right that the state must guarantee by law. And if you veer away from that, you can be arrested. You can be prosecuted. Now, look at the last one, legislative. He saved this to the end. To support Sunday observance, he appeals to Roman and ecclesiastical laws, and finally appeals for civil legislation. At the present time, to safeguard the Christian's duty in this regard. And I'm quoting again from the encyclical, therefore, also, in the particular circumstance of our time, he argues, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Paragraph after that, I'm looking at the middle of the paragraph after D. From the book, Great Controversy, page 605, 615. The Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty, for it is the point of truth especially controverted. As the Sabbath has become the special point of controversy, and religious and secular authorities have combined to enforce the observance of the Sunday, the persistent refusal of a small minority to yield to the popular demand will make them objects of universal excretion, derision, ridicule. Let me say something about that. I, I don't want to be too specific, but there are certain attempts in the Adventist church today to water down our distinctive message to make of no effect what we're given as the final remnant. Under the guise of living a peaceful life with everybody, that we need to get along. 
don't make an issue out of our distinctive message, such as the Sabbath. Try to get along. You know something? You can worship on Sunday, Sabbath. You have freedom to do whatever you want, as long as you worship. There are some Adventist groups who go to church on Sunday and Sabbath. It's okay. You need to get along with everybody. Why make an issue, uh, issue about the sanctuary? What about the state of the dead? Don't be divisive in a culture where people are viewed as hate mongers and uh, demagogues, dogmatic. Everybody now is encouraged to get along. I am all for getting along like the Waldenses. They tried their best to get along with everybody, live at peace with everybody, Baba said. When it comes to a matter of principle and Bible, we got to stand up, but stand up with respect and love. Nevertheless, stand up. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Be careful. There are certain attempts today to dull the sharpness of our message so we can get along. So that when Sunday law comes on the scene, people won't appreciate it. Well, I mean, come on. They love the Lord. We love the Lord. So, you know, as long as you keep a day, as long as you worship God on Monday, that's the main principle. That's the main idea. Why would you then stand up for the Sabbath? If it's just, it's okay. Don't worry about keeping the Sabbath. You know, it's interesting. Ellen White said, during the early time of trouble, you, you have... Early time and great time of trouble. You know there are two times of trouble, double trouble. The, late, the, the, the great time of trouble is where death decree will be issued. When Jacob's, trouble takes, Jacob's time of trouble takes place. When at the end, also the close of probation. Ellen White said during the early time of trouble, when Sunday law is first legislated, it will be start in a mild way before it becomes more intense. Devil often starts in a mild way. He's clever. Like with the Hebrew friends, when they're asked to bow before the image, it wasn't forced, it wasn't coerced, it was very pleasant. All kinds of music. Music is beautiful, isn't it? The devil uses music and God uses music. When the devil uses music, it's seductive. It's, it's uh, what word shall I use? It is not only seductive, it's hypnotizing. Exactly. Effect is way so powerful, and the music plays all kinds of music. You know, when the music is there, it moves your heart and you stir it up, you do whatever they want to do. Everybody bow except Daniel's friends. So Sunday law, national Sunday law during the early time of the will start smooth. It will not be forced by legislation, be taken to prison. You know, the devil will appeal to us in a, in, a, in a reasonable way. Come on, it's for the sake of the nation. Come on, America is being destroyed at the core. We need to go back to God and all worship together. Are you patriotic? I mean, you want to support your country, don't you? Ellen White said, during that time, do not... Bring about the time of trouble prematurely. She was a very balanced, wise woman. She said on Sunday, do works of mercy. Visit the poor. Give Bible studies. Don't get, don't get at your mower and make a loud noise. Don't, don't add to your house. Don't do construction. You need to do mission work anyway. Do it on Sunday so you won't provoke your neighbors. It's not a sin to do mission work on Sunday. You see how wise she was? Don't cause trouble prematurely. There are Adventist people who are, who have what I call persecution complex. I don't like persecution. I'm willing to face persecution with Jesus on my side. What do they do? They stir up trouble needlessly. Ellen White warned against them. They put placards everywhere about the beast. Pope, Catholicism, had a church member 
on Sunday, he thought witnessing was the best for him when he would go to every Catholic church in the parking lot and he put very derogatory statements in their windshield. And he said about them, coming from your friends, the Seventh-day Adventists. And these words were not friendly at all. Very condemning words. You see, do not bring out the time persecution prematurely and needlessly. It's going to come. But don't bring it about prematurely. That's a balanced, wise counsel. Anyway, uh, another point I want to bring out, and that is the chart. Today is dealing with some facts. Chart of last day events. We just mentioned about the great time of trouble and uh, early time of trouble, National Sunday Law. Let's go together to page 238. I call this a working chart. Please don't take it to mean everything is correct. Nobody knows exactly every minute detail about the last day events. But we know the main ideas. And so I'm just telling you, you know, this is just a working chart. Page 238. 238. The National Sunday Law. That's the next thing we're expecting. And that will be the second counterfeit for God's gifts in the Garden of Eden. That's the greatest counterfeit to the Sabbath, Sunday. It's coming upon us. Number two, international Sunday law. The whole world will be involved in this. And that's why the book of Revelation says they will receive the stamp on their forehead, on their hand. What does that mean? What does that imply? The forehead means conviction. These are the ones who really believe in it with all their heart. Conviction of the mind. The stamp on the hand is convenience. I call them the two C's. Conviction and convenience. Who will follow Sunday law, international Sunday law by convenience? Oh, many countries in the world. They could be Buddhists, Hindus, Islamic. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the whole world interconnect in commerce in all kinds of activities, and what happens in America impacts the whole world. So for convenience, and to keep employment, the economy coming, people are willing to say, okay, we will observe Sunday law, as long as it helps us commercially, economically, and internationally. Three, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain. Four, the little early time of trouble. A, we talk about the shaking. I'm just wetting you up. I can't discuss. We don't have enough time. The shaking will take place among God's people first as a result of giving the straight testimony. Then the loud cry. And the, the loud cry in B, look at the bottom of page 239, the last five lines. The final remnant at the bottom of page 239. The final remnant has been preaching the three angels' messages. Revelation 14, 6 to 13. Many Adventists don't know what the three angels' messages are. We're called by God to preach the three angels' messages in these last days. Yet Satan, as always, has a counterfeit for everything that God gives. There are two examples of his deception. Last line on page 239, if you're trying to find it. 239, the last line. First, Satan counterfeits the Holy Trinity. He doesn't just counterfeit the Sabbath. He dares to counterfeit the Holy Trinity. He's a very daring person. He counterfeits the Holy Trinity. How? With the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, page 240. Now let me tell you what the Holy Trinity is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. The Father is counterfeited by the dragon, Satan. The Son of God, Jesus, counterfeited by the beast. And the Holy Spirit is counterfeited by the false prophet. It's interesting, by the way. The Holy Spirit inspired true prophets. 
Satan counterfeits the Holy Spirit by providing a false prophet with a false message. Let me continue with this here. Second, Satan conjures up this counterfeit trinity by proclaiming the three counterfeit messages to the three angels' messages. So even the three angels' message, Revelation 14, he counterfeits by his own three messages, and these are the three messages of the three frogs that are telling falsehoods. They are described as three unclean spirits-like frogs coming out of the mouth. By the way, they come out of the mouth of each one of the false trinity. These unclean spirits coming out of these frogs come through the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. Five, the sealing of the saints. Six, the close of probation. I need to make a comment about tomorrow we'll deal more with the whole, uh, with the whole uh, notion about the fear people have of the statement in the great controversy saying the day will come during the great time of trouble where we have to live alone before God, before the Holy God, without having the intercessor Jesus. People are afraid of that. We'll explain all about it tomorrow. It's good news, not bad news. But at least I allude to it here. How will the saints be sealed? Just before Jesus says, it is finished. He doesn't say it's finished until he seals us. And what does the sealing imply? Ellen White defines it this way. The sealing is this. God settles us, settles us in Jesus and his truth that we can never be shaken. That we settle in Jesus and the truth both intellectually and spiritually, that we cannot be shaken. Cannot be shaken. We are the shell stuck in the rock. Cannot be shaken. Our destiny is determined. Immediately after that, Jesus comes out of the most holy place and says, it's finished. Those who are holy, let them be holy still. Those who are wicked, let them be wicked still. If he declares you righteous and holy, you'll be holy and righteous forever. Jesus, by then, would have finished his work of intercession. And there'd be no need for intercession because you're sealed. You'll never be shaken. And you declare righteous and holy forever. And that cannot change. So to me, it's good news. that Jesus ceases to be our intercessor at that time. Why? Because if he doesn't stop interceding, he will never come to take us home. That's a logical fact. Would you like Jesus to intercede forever? No. We want him to come and take us home. But he never will come in the clouds of heaven until he makes sure you're okay. Seals you with the Holy Spirit that you can never be shaken and declares you righteous and holy forever. Not, nothing can change that anymore. And then he says, it's finished. I tell my students, again, let me use Jennifer as an example, if you don't mind. Now you're a mature lady, married, having kids. How many kids do you have? How old? Seven and nine. Aren't you happy? Don't you feel successful? that you're not repeating the course you took with me over and over and over again. So for the sake of me, continue to be your professor. I'm your friend. You're like family to us. I can be your mentor. I can be your advisor. I can be your prayer warrior, but not teaching you Adventist heritage because you've passed the course in God's name. That's good news. It's good news. At some point, Jesus will not need to intercede for us but to remain everything else to us. I'm not Jennifer's professor anymore. That's good news. That means she succeeded and graduated. If I remained to be her professor in Adventist Heritage, that would seem she would have been a total failure, spending 15 years taking my course. You get the point? 
Christ will not need to continue interceding. Why? Because he finished intercession, guaranteeing us to be settled in truth forever and declared righteous and holy forever. But he'll be everything else to us. Everything. Our friend. Everything else to us. Except intercession. Why? Because we will not need it. That's all. Please don't take the statement to me, you got to work to be perfect. These perfectionistic people, oh, I'm going to stand before the Holy God. I must be perfect all by myself. But nobody can do that. Nobody. The only one who is really perfect is Jesus. The only one who never has any chaff in him is Jesus. How do I become perfect then? When I submit myself to Christ and he covers me his righteousness, what happens? I become perfect in his own perfection. I become worthy in his own worthiness. Yet, always his perfection is absolute. My perfection in him is relative. You know, like an apple, an apple tree. You have apples in Michigan. At every point of development, it's perfect for that time. Growth continues. God doesn't have to grow in his perfection. He's absolutely perfect. And Ellen White said, some Adventists are trying to be absolutely perfect in this world. She said, save some perfection to heaven. Because even heaven, she said, heaven is a ceaseless approaching to God. We'll be always perfected more and more and more without ever fully becoming as perfect as God. If we become as perfect as God, we will be gods like God. And what Lucifer wanted, we'll always fall short of being equal to God in perfection. So that's why she said, heaven is a ceaseless approaching to God. It's not a goal, it's a way of life. And that's why Toyota has a very good definition for Christians who want to be sanctified. I think the slogan goes, either Toyota or Lexus, passionate about the pursuit of perfection. Another one says, restless in the sake of pursuit of perfection. It's not a goal. It's a way of life. More and more, even heaven will get closer and closer to God without reaching the ultimate. Then what we have is this. The close of probation, and they are the texts. Unjust be unjust till all of it is here. The experience I shared with you is here. Seven, the great time of trouble. All I want to say about that, that's found in Daniel 12, 11. Sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. It's so encouraging. Even in the great time of trouble, Daniel said, no time of trouble greater than that. But in the first verse, talking about this great time of trouble, that's, by the way, during the last plagues, when the four angels will loose the winds of strife around this world, there'll be havoc, chaos, confusion, destruction. But will be in the hollow of God's hands. And during that time, in Daniel 12, verse 1, this is what it says. So do you have Daniel 12, verse 1? Would you please stand up and read it for us? Daniel 12 and verse 1. Thank you. That's one verse only. It's pregnant with meaning. Whenever you think about the great time of trouble, nothing as great since creation. Even though Christ will not be interceding for us at that time, but he remained to us as what in that verse? As what? Three things he remained to us in that verse to encourage us. Number one, he will defend us. Christ will remain as our defender. You notice what it says here? 
he'll stand up for his people. Michael will stand up for his people. That means it means defending them. Later on the verse you notice he'll watch over his people. What does it mean to watch over his people? To be their protector. And at the end of the verse he will find deliver them. Isn't that wonderful? Three things about Michael. The name of Jesus used only in opposition with Satan. There's a whole chapter in the book about Michael. Very interesting subject. His, his name is only used when he's in confrontation with the, with the devil. You know, when Moses was buried on Mount Nebo, Christ came to resurrect him, the devil came. And there in Jude, it used the name Michael for Jesus because he was confronting the devil. You don't have right to resurrect Moses. Oh, thank God, Christ has the right for everything. The devil thinks he owns this world. He doesn't. Jesus died for this world. It's my father's world. So, interesting study about Michael. But in this context, Michael shall stand up for his people, meaning defend them. He shall watch over his people, meaning he'll be their protector. And finally, he will deliver them. He'll be the deliverer. How can we lose? During the time of the close of probation, when everything is determined, and the four angels are not told to hold back the winds of strife, what do we have with Jesus? Not our intercessor. He doesn't need to intercede anymore. He has to come as our conquering king. That's good news. But he will always remain to us as our defender, as our protector, as our deliverer. He doesn't leave you alone. He'll never leave you or forsake you, he said, until the end of the world. Then, in eight, the seven last plagues, Nine, the death decree. By the way, the death decree will not succeed. Isn't that wonderful? During the great time of trouble, while the plagues are falling, the death decree will not be executed. And we learn this from Daniel and his friends. Their death decree was a type of the final death decree. You notice when Nebuchadnezzar discovered no wise advisor in the palace could interpret the dream for him. And he asked his general to go and execute the wise men, including Daniel. So they came to take Daniel to execute him. He said, what's the rush? Give me some time and God will reveal to me the answer. The advisors were killed, but Daniel's death decree wasn't carried out. Another death decree in the life of Daniel. He was put in the lion's den. That was a death decree. And they made the lion so hungry. Hungry, famished for flesh. And they dumped Daniel in the, lion, in the lion's den. But he was saved from this death decree. Why? Though they were hungry lions, remember, the Lion of Judah, Jesus, was in the fray. Don't ever afraid of hungry lions of this world if the Lion of Judah, Jesus, is with you. He closed the mouths of hungry lions. Let the Lion, Jesus, take care of the lions in your life. And then the three Hebrew friends had their own death decree. Not by execution and not by starving lions but by fire. Everybody bowed down to the idol, that golden image. Today, Satan is enticing God's people to bow down to all kinds of images. It could be the image of music. It could be the image of going your own way against God's way. It could be the image of saying, I want to do the minimum for God, even though he does the maximum for me. It could be the image of compromise. Oh, everybody is doing it. God loves me so much. He, I'll get by with that. There are many spiritual camouflages we need to be careful about. And what happened? The challenge came. Nebuchadnezzar gave them a second chance with more music, more enticement, more encouragement, more seductive approach. At the end of all this fuss 
they're faithful. And when he threatened them, who is the God who's going to save you out of my hand? All your enemies, the whole empire is against you. There is a death decree issued against you. And now look at this flaming, look at this flaming fire. Heat. Heat. That fiery furnace, many times more. It was so hot that Nebuchadnezzar's lieutenants approached it and they're consumed. Dead. You see, before you even thrown there, you're going to die. Now, who is the God who is going to save you out of the clutches of my hands? You know what they said in a very calm way? Because, you see, they had a spiritual reservoir. They had this deposit, spiritual deposit in their spiritual bank. This is what they said in a very calm way. They're confident in God. We need to be confident in God and not be afraid. And they said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we know that God can save us from your hand. But even if he does not, we still trust him anyway. I call this the if not faith. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Yet they were saved from the fiery furnace. The death decree. You might say, well, are you telling us all God's faithful people will not be laid to rest? No, I'm not talking about the early time. I'm talking about the final time. Death decree will not prevail. How did, how did Jesus, the Son of God, liberate them from this death decree? Oh, he stepped in the fire with them. He let be our intercessor, but he'll step with us in our fiery furnace to face our death decree with us. And how did he fight the consuming fire? How did he fight the fiery furnace? Well, you know, the Bible calls him the consuming fire. He fought fire with fire. And Jesus' fire defeats every fire. Remember, the consuming fire is always with you, and so don't be afraid of fiery furnaces. Now then, death decree and on, on page 242, Jacob's time of trouble, though we are sealed, assured of our salvation, yet will be a refining period. Like Jacob, we know that Jacob was going to be saved, of course. But he met with the angel of the Lord and came to the point where he said, I'm not worthy of anything. You know, by the way, the ones who were sealed would be amazed how God can save them. They'll be surprised. I mean, can you believe this? Can you believe this? See, I don't deserve this. How could this happen to me? Yet the ones who are not sealed will be so upset that they are not saved. Doesn't God think I deserve to be saved? Look how much I've done in his name. And Jacob said, as he held on, to the angel of the Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's kind of refinement. Not indispensable, but refinement. So much so, be fit to go to heaven. The battle of Armageddon. I'm going to let you go a little bit early. What do you think of that? In all my classes, oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you for giving me five minutes extra. To make up for the extra time I took. Oh, you might say, oh, Dr. Saman, we paid tuition for this seminar. Don't deprive us of knowledge. You got the textbook. You better go home and read. So tomorrow you can get more out of it. How many have been reading? Well, of course. You're on vacation. You know, you're just relaxing. It's the perfect time to read. Let me say this at the end. Let me conclude. My parents, bless their hearts, faced a lot of trouble. Persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, interrogated. And Jesus was with them, always encouraging them. As their Defender as their protector, as their deliverer. And now they're resting in Jesus. 
No ISIS, no civil war, no Satan can touch them. They're fortunate, aren't they? Isn't it a blessing to die in the Lord Jesus? Let me tell you something for sure. Don't ever worry about the time of trouble and persecution. Somehow, if you have the spiritual deposit, if you have the spiritual deposit in your spiritual bank, like Daniel and his friends, when the time of trouble comes, you know something, you'll be stronger than you think if you've been walking with Jesus. You will rise up to the occasion with Jesus. I'm telling you, that's encouraging to me. And I want to assure you of that because I want to tell you the experience I had in Africa. I was persecuted when I was in the mission field in a certain way. I was given a Jeep, Land Rover, to drive to a certain town in the jungle. Very poor roads in the jungle. Not roads like here. Here, there are signs. There are no signs. No signs at all. Here, they say, be careful. In 500 500 feet, there'll be a bump. You know, America is wonderful. And I tell my wife, okay, let's watch for 500 feet. You don't feel anything. What kind of a bump is that? In Africa, in the jungle, your car can sink in the hole without any warning. (laughs) No signs, nothing. I got lost in the jungle all by myself. I thought all I was by myself. But Jesus was always with me, even when I didn't feel him. I got lost big time. Oh, by the way, in the jungle in Nigeria, people wait for you to come to preach. Oh, they can wait two, three days. I mean, after all, they walk three, four days to hear the word of God. They go, oh, how come you're not here on time? No, you come when you can. We wait for you. And as I was lost and worried to death, couldn't find my way, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. I was supposed to get to the village at 6 o'clock in the evening. It was 8 hours later, lost, big time. No GPS, no maps, no direction, nothing. All of a sudden, as I was stopping at a fork, because it's telling you, you don't know, this way or that, you just start to think, stop, think, and pray. A gang of guerrillas who are fighting against the government. Drunk. About 25 of them. Drunk. By local liquor made out of bananas. Don't ever taste that stuff. With machine guns. Forced me out of my jeep. And pointing all these machines got at me and they sound so drunk. They could have killed me even, even without knowing they killed me. And they began to threaten me. We already killed some travelers and robbed them, and nobody knew about them. We're going to do the same thing to you. That was my time of trouble. Alone, my wife wasn't there, my child wasn't there, the division president wasn't there. Alone. Like Paul felt he was alone. Everybody abandoned me. By the way, in time of trouble, If best friends can betray you, God will find you new friends. Even your family members might betray you. But God will find you spiritual families. God found Chris and his dear wife, Shaban, which means what? It means a lady. That's a nice meaning, isn't it? Chris, aren't you glad you got a lady? Shaban means lady. He provided her, her family abandoned her completely. For good, forever, unless God changed their hearts. But yet she got a new family. Your parents, your loved ones, become her loved ones. And all the people who were this morning as we made the interview, everybody raised their hands and said, we'll be your family. And the Apostle Paul said, everybody abandoned me during his time of crisis before being beheaded. But he said, though everybody abandoned me, yet the Lord stood by me. And that's the thought from the Apostle Paul I need at that time. Lord, 
Nobody is around me. I'm alone. I could be dead without anybody knowing. How will my wife know about it? Will she discover in a year? Will she ever discover? How would my daughter and my wife feel about that? I'm young. I'm only 31. I have a whole life ahead of me. Lord, even though I'm alone, like the Apostle Paul, help me to believe you're standing by me. So they surround me with machine guns, point them at me, acting crazy, drunk. I said, you said you're going to kill me. I'm a missionary. We don't care about missionaries. Well, before you kill me, can I have prayer? It's always good to pray, isn't it? In all circumstances. No wonder Paul said, pray in all, without ceasing in all seasons. You know, if you want to be shot, be shot praying to God. Don't shot anyway. Don't be shot complaining and crying and complaining and, and being upset and fighting. Don't fight these people. God will fight your battle for you. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Would you please give me the privilege to pray to God while you are shooting me? Okay, you can have your final prayer. You know something what I did? I bowed my head and closed my eyes tight. You know why? Because I don't like to see blood. It's so nice to close your eyes when you pray. And you know something? I felt, I, I began to imagine how, how would it feel like for a bullet to enter me? Where? I know from physiology, initially you don't feel it very much, but then later on, but, but I mean, hopefully it will be to the heart. I don't know. I, I want to be martyred quickly. I really imagine the entering of a bullet in, in, in me. I, every moment, second was precious. Treasured every second of life. Please don't take life for granted. Appreciate every second. I start praying. First of all, I prayed for these people and their families and their children and their loved ones. And I prayed for the first half a minute and I wasn't dead yet. I said, oh, my prayer works. Keep on praying. I survived one half minute. I prayed for another minute about about them, about their town, their villages, their country, the hungry people. One minute passed by, I wasn't dead yet. Oh, it's working. I relish. Oh, prayer is such a wonderful thing. I pray all my life if I could live. And some of us complain about praying for five minutes. The day will come when you will appreciate praying. And I kept praying, and the noise, and the arguments, and, the, and all the, the, the noise, violent noise, and threats began to die down, die down. I said, something is working. I'm not dead yet, and they are not shouting at me anymore. The Holy Spirit is subduing them. So I tell you, I felt so energized at that point to pray, and I prayed, and I prayed for at least 45 minutes. And the noise stopped. The noise totally stopped. But to make sure they're all gone and God answered my prayer for extra measure, I prayed five more minutes. And very gradually, I began to open my eyes a little bit, you know, a little bit. I don't see any gorillas or finally, didn't see it. So I opened my eyes. And everybody was gone. Only Jesus and me. When I felt I was alone, Threatened by shooting, the Lord Jesus stood by me. And I assure you, based on God's word and how I experience God's word, the Lord will take care of you as your protector, defender, and deliverer. Amen. I'm just letting you go about, you know, six, seven minutes early. Let's bow our heads and pray. Loving Father, please. Please, help us to listen to you. Help us to experience your presence, hear your voice telling us. Don't focus on the gorillas of this life. Focus on my presence. 
Don't focus on the fire. Focus on Jesus, the consuming fire, who will walk with you forever. Whenever you're tempted to focus on the time of trouble, focus on Jesus walking with you through time of trouble. Don't focus on the storm. There are storms everywhere. But focus on the Prince of Peace, Jesus, who will stand in the midst of the storm and say, Peace be still. May you be our Prince of Peace as we walk with you from day to day like Enoch until we walk with you into heaven with the angels. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.